Law enforcement suicides are at an all-time high right now. One of the causes is poor leadership within the law enforcement profession. Nick, the host of the Roll Call Room podcast, has written a book, Police Mental Barricade, A Survivor's Guide to Poor Law Enforcement Leadership. This book is a raw and powerful look into suicide and how poor leadership decisions contribute to law enforcement suicides. Buy the book now at mentalhealthbarricade.com and stop the stigma. The issues discussed on the Roll Call Room podcast do not reflect the opinions of any specific agency. Any characters discussed on this show may be fictional for comedic value unless you're a shitbag Steve. This podcast is rated explicit and listener discretion is advised. What's stopping you? Are you too tired? Didn't get enough sleep? Don't have enough energy? Don't have enough time? Is that what's stopping you right now? Don't have enough money? Is that the thing? Or is the thing that's stopping you, you? Excuses sound best to the person that's making them up. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Get off the pity potty. Telling everybody your sad and sob stories, trying to get people to show up to your pity potties and your pity parades. If you ever see me in a Rolls Royce, a six or seven star hotel, living my life to the fullest, don't get jealous of me. Because I worked my ass off to get it. Nobody handed me nothing. Wake your ass up. Awaken the beast inside. It's game on. It's go season. It's time for you to take advantage of the access and the resources that you have in your country and your community. You got a problem with your life. You got a problem with your environment. Do something about it. If you want it, go get it. Recognize the excuses are not valid. They're conjured up. They're fabricated. They're lies. And how do you stop the lies? You stop the lies with the truth. But the truth is, you have time. You have the skill. You have the knowledge and the support and the willpower and the discipline to get it done. The fruit of everything good in life begins with a challenge. Everything is a pill that's worthwhile. And it's not going to come to you, and it's not going to fall in your lap, and it's not going to be something that, oh my God, it just was so simple. It's always going to be difficult. If you want it, you got to go get it. This is your chance. This is your shot. This is your moment. This is your time. This is your place. This is your opportunity. This is my time. This is my moment. Tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. Ain't no such thing as tomorrow. We only got today. 
It's your dream. If you want it to happen, lift your butt up and make it happen. If you want it to happen, rise and grind. You still got work to do. Stay on that basketball court. Stay on that football field. It's grind season, homie. Hello, and welcome to the Roll Call Room podcast, the podcast that pissed shitbag Steve's off and fucked over my dad. And now your host and my daddy, Nick. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Roll Call Room. I am happy that you are tuning in. Um, Mike, my co-host, uh, is working uh, all hands on deck where he works. Um, uh, luckily, the protests, riots, whatever you want to call it, are slowing down, so... Uh, This will be one of the only times that he's not able to tune in to do the beginning of the show. Uh, Today's show is very special. Um, Going back in October, November, when we first started the podcast, um, this guest, Ernie Stevens from Ernie and Joe Crisis Cops from HBO, reached out to me on Twitter, um, found the show and gave a huge compliment about the show. Uh, That developed into a very, very strong friendship between him and I. Uh, We communicated quite often. Uh, He listens to every episode. Uh, His uh, wonderful wife made a a beautiful mug uh, rest for me, which is actually right next to me. I'm putting my hand on it right now. Uh, It's in the studio with me, along with the cup that um, Ernie sent over. Uh, I treasure it. Um, because, uh, they've grown to be a part of my family. So Joe's, I'm sorry, Ernie has, uh, checked in on me since I left my agency, uh, checks on me routinely and make sure that I'm doing okay. And, uh, was, uh, really, really hoping to get him on the show. And he reached out to me like a week or two ago and was like, Hey, I'm ready to do, I'm ready to do this. So, um, that is the reason why I put this thing together for today and um, I'm going to release it first on YouTube, exclusively on YouTube, our YouTube channel. And then I'm going to release it on our platform. Um, but I felt it was necessary to talk about officer wellness, uh, as I always do. Uh, and specifically with Ernie, because he is an expert in his field when it comes to um, crisis intervention. And um, those of you that have not seen Crisis Cops on HBO, you need to go check that out. Uh, seriously, if you're you're into developing your career uh, or honing some skills into communication or communicating with um, 
uh, folks that are mentally ill or just people in crisis, I highly recommend it. So um, him and I talked, we scheduled this for today, and uh, I just love the way that the interview came out. So um, I wanted to get this out as soon as possible. Um, so that's what we got going on. Uh, behind the scenes, we got uh, a lot of cool things happening. Um, you know, I'll keep you guys posted on uh, stuff that's going on. Um, we got some new sponsors that are coming on. Um, some folks that have um, joined us and have been very supportive, like like Peacemaker Coffee Company, uh, Leo Patch Plaques. Um, uh, fire uh firehouse cookie company um they were awesome actually i had their cookie dough last night uh they sent me three containers of cookie dough i don't know what it is i think it's since i'm not working um and um been quarantined for um covid uh i'm just craving sweets like all the time and um you know so fire uh firehouse fire um Firehouse Cookie Company sent me this uh, care package, like, of test stuff. And I sat there with the um, birthday cookie dough. And, oh, my God. I just destroyed that thing. I destroyed that thing like Carol Baskin destroyed her ex-husband in the meat grinder. It was just, it was luscious. Like, But then after I was done and, like, my spoon hit the bottom of the, the jar, I was a little ashamed of myself. Um but I don't care because it tasted really good. So um, what else we got going on? Um, so we got some uh, other sponsors out there. Leo Patch Plaques. He just sent over, Serge just sent over my new plaque. I love it. Uh, I'm looking at it right now in the studio. Uh, we'll be doing a couple more lives here and there. Uh, we're going to be doing a fan appreciation um bunch of uh facebook lives where we're going to read some of these emails that we keep on getting uh because it's just so impactful and so powerful that um i think it's necessary to share with you guys the stuff that you know mike and i get on a regular basis um from fans of the show so um and we appreciate it so keep it coming um keep your emails coming nick at rollcallroom.com or mike at rollcallroom.com uh, we still have our P.O. box. If you go on rollcallroom.com, the address for the P.O. box is right on the home screen. Go on there. Uh, you can send us patches. You can send us challenge coins. You can send us stamps. You can send whatever your heart desires. I uh, greatly appreciate it. Uh, my book is open for pre-order. You can go to rollcallroom.com and pre-order the book, or you can go to mentalhealthbarricade.com, which is my website just for the book. Uh, pre-sales will go on till about mm, mid-July. Uh, $5 from every book goes to, uh, gets donated to bluehelp.org. Fantastic organization. Uh, and um, the book, I'm really proud of the book. Uh, it's going to address mental health issues within law enforcement and the correlation between poor leadership uh, and officer, uh, officer suicides. So uh, a lot, a lot of stuff going on. And um, We'll be releasing episodes a little bit more frequently. I'm, I'm looking at the idea of releasing two a week, um, just seeing how feasible it is. Uh, so we also have our Patreon. Go on uh, rollcallroom.com to join Patreon. You get exclusive stuff with that. 
Um, and if you're a fan of the show and you're listening to it on iTunes, please go on iTunes, leave a five star with a comment. Uh, and if you'd like a free poster signed, uh, take a little snapshot of that uh, review. And then, uh, um, you know, send it on over to our Instagram, our Facebook, uh, wherever, wherever you can find us. And uh, I'll ship one of those posters out for free. Uh, so um, with that, I'm going to wrap it up and we're going to go into the interview. If you haven't checked out the Lieutenant Colonel Grossman interview, uh, part one, uh, check that out. Part two will come out the following week. So his uh, second episode will come out um, the following week. So um, that's pretty much it. I'm going to wrap it up. And you folks enjoy this uh, episode with Ernie Stevens. Uh, and, um, you know, check out bluehelp.org. Uh, check out rollcallroom.com. And again, you can reach me at nick at rollcallroom.com or nick, uh, I'm sorry, or mike at rollcallroom.com. All right, folks, enjoy the episode. Look down on Try your best Try everything you can All my friends are heathens Take it slow Wait for them to ask you who you know Please don't make any sad you don't know the half of the abuse. All my friends are eating take it slow. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming back from break. Uh, I have a very, very special guest. Um, uh, we have gone back and forth, wow, since I think the beginning of the podcast back in October. Uh, I've heard Ernie from, uh, Ernie, can I say your last name? Absolutely. Let's do this. All right. Um, I have Ernie Stevens on with me from Ernie and Joe Crisis Cops. Ernie, thanks for coming on, man. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. I've been wanting to do this for a while. Yeah, we uh, we kind of hooked up back when we first started the show originally. And um, I don't know how you found us, but uh, you had reached out. And then um, uh, I watched Crisis Cops. And uh, then I started talking to my fellow officers and they were like, yeah, yeah, you didn't see that documentary. And I was like, where, where was I? Where have I been? And um, it is like in Virginia, it is now a, um, a documentary that is shown in the police academy, specifically during CIT uh, and CISM training uh, for our non-law enforcement people. That acronym is Crisis Intervention Team. Uh, and the other one is Crisis uh crisis intervention scene management yeah i've been out of it for two months ernie and i forgot already man usually we i think we called it crisis uh intervention stress management uh that's what the fire department uses the acronym down here when we went to the training yeah and um those of you have not checked it out uh one shame on you because it was free the entire month of may and i plugged the hell out of it um but it's incredible to watch because uh and ernie you can you can chime in, which is, is I think that is the direction that we as law enforcement officers, we're going to have to start adapting that mindset specifically now in the current climate. Yeah, no, there, there's no doubt, Nick. And then, you know, for a while I was saying that CIT and, and CIT training was the future of policing, but I misspoke. I mean, it is the, it is the now of policing. Uh, it's what should be doing, um, what all departments should be doing, uh, should be taught in every 
police academy. But more than that, um, it's more than just interacting with people in a mental health crisis. It's any type of crisis. What the training does is it teaches not only de-escalation, but perception, you know, how to look at another person's point of view. And in doing that, it helps you with your decision-making process to be fair and equitable when you're dealing with an individual that's in a crisis. Yeah. And I, what I noticed from that, um, from the documentary too, is, is that you don't sacrifice officer safety for, um, that type of, uh, policing. And I think that's the big misconception, which is, is, uh, getting personal with people, getting close to people. Um, I understand hands kill and all that other stuff, but, um, I agree with you. I think the now in police work now is that we have to adapt that CIT type of, uh, mentality, um, especially now. Yeah. Uh, you know, Joe, Joe talks about it in the documentary, you know, that we catch flack, you know, sometimes for sitting down with people, but then he makes a great point. You know, I'm going to sit down because I'm not going to stand over them and talk down to them. And they're going to tell me a lot more uh, than they will tell you, you know, if you're towering over them. And I think that's an important point uh, that that's made throughout the documentary. It's more than about the training. It's more than about the response what we found by doing all the film festivals, and I'd love to talk about them and the reaction that we've had from the film festivals is it's about humanity and human connection. Mm -hmm. Are you able to be transparent and authentic with people when you're dealing with them? And if you are, you're going to have just a great response from them and you're going to be able to um, really connect at a whole nother level than if you're just showing up and it's, you know, police officer in uniform, I'm here to save the day or solve the problem no matter what's going on, I really don't need to hear too much from you and I'm going to make the final outcome. And that's just antiquated and it's not going to work anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I foresee in a lot of the uh, police reforms that are about to come out for some of these police departments, that's going to be at the top of uh, top of the list. So in addition to consent decrees, I think that'll be at the top of the list, but let's go back to the documentary for a second. So, so you do this documentary and it comes out, comes out on HBO uh, what was the what was the initial response that you guys got? Well, first, it was a shock factor because when, um, you know, when we were told that the director, Jen McShane, wanted to even come down and do a documentary, we really didn't put much credence into it, to be honest with you. Uh, we had a lot of local media. We had a little bit of national attention from uh, ABC News and Nightline and Byron Pitts came down and rode with us. And he ran a story and it actually ran three times in one year, which was the most they ever ran a story. And that was due to police officer involved shootings of people involved in a crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, the, a, a writer by the name of Ann Snyder came down and wrote an article called Policing with Velvet Gloves out of the Atlantic. And that story got back to Jim Shane. So she came down actually to meet us and do a ride along. Uh, she did not bring a camera. And I felt it very weird that a film director didn't have a camera with her. But it was important knowing that she just wanted to get a feel of who we were as individuals mm-hmm. and not really impose her presence on us with a camera, which I thought was very important in the report building process. So the documentary, you know, she starts making it, putting it together, and she screens it for me and Joe privately at his house. Mm-hmm. And we had no idea what to expect because she never told us the direction it was going to go. It, it kind of took a whole nother direction when we had two officers get shot uh, during the filming process and one of them was killed. And, you know, it showed that, you know, we had to respond to our own uh, individuals that are in the crisis within the police department. 
And I, that was not something I think that was originally planned for. So, um, you know, she screams it. I've, I was speechless for, for uh, days. I didn't know how to put my thoughts together. Um, and I finally sat down with Joe and I thought, what did you think? He's like, man, it's incredible. Um, I, I just don't, I need to see it again. Cause I was too worried about, did I look fat? Did I sound stupid? Like you, you think these things and you're caught up in it. Yeah. Um, but then we actually saw the release at South by Southwest in Austin, which is a huge film festival. And we had no idea where it was going to show. And we walk up to the draft house, which is a normal theater where you would take your family to buy popcorn and soda and sit down and watch a movie. And there's our giant movie poster outside. That's so you know, cool. And I'm looking at Joe going, Man, this, this shit cannot be real. Like this is not happening. And uh, so they sneak us in and we kind of sit in the middle and people are coming in with their popcorn and their drinks. And, and I'm like, please God, don't let nobody walk out. Like this cannot be, you know, that interesting. I mean, we're just two cops from Texas. Yeah. We're, just doing, yeah, we're just doing what we do. Um, but at the opening scene, of course, um, it's very traumatic. There's a police-involved shooting where the individual is killed. Mm-hmm. And when I started hearing the people gasp in the audience, and you're hearing, oh, my God, oh, that's horrible, oh, no. And you, you know, I got chills in my body when I, when I, because I've seen that footage so much that I, wasn't, I didn't have that reaction that yeah. if, as if you saw it the first time. Uh, what was interesting is, you know, now I'm feeling the goosebumps. I'm starting to get hot. I'm watching this as people are taking it in. And then at the end of the film, uh, Jen McShane goes up to do a Q&A. And then she goes, oh, by the way, I brought two special guests. I've got Ernie and Joe. We get a standing ovation. Uh-huh. We go up on stage. Yeah, it, I mean, you couldn't script this any better. Um, we go up on stage. We answer some questions from the audience. And then we have two more showings throughout the week. And all of them were sold out. Uh, all of them got standing ovations. And then we're informed by Jen. She calls us up and says, hey, guys, just let you know, the film won the, the Grand Jury Award um, for Empathy in Art. or I, I forget the exact title. But I'm like, okay, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> is that good? I mean, yeah. good. That, that's real good, guys. I'm, I'm letting you know that's really good in, in film talk. I'm like, all right. So we start going to these different film festivals. Well, right away, what we didn't, what Joe and I didn't know was as soon as South by Southwest was over, um, I think HBO was already reaching out, you know, to uh, take interest in this film. And from there, we just continued to go on the circuit of different film festivals. And the reaction is incredible. Um, You know, I I could talk all day about the people that we met along the way. Mm -hmm. And just, again, it brings me back to the point of the film of human connection. And the importance of that in policing. Any interaction at these film film festivals or outside of the film festivals from law enforcement officers that had changed the way that they policed uh, when dealing with emotionally disturbed uh, people or people in crisis? So throughout the circuit that we were on, a lot of times we were on a panel with a chief of police from that town. Mm hmm. They were completely sold out on the concept of this type of policing, of this type of approach. And mm-hmm. the approach, for those that haven't seen the film, is please understand that Joe and I and, and the officers on our mental health unit, we wear plain clothes, mm-hmm. which I think is a huge de-escalator. Um, it's just it's your very first show of presence and usually in uniform 
that's your very first continuum of use of force is mere presence. Correct. So showing up in plain clothes, I think, is is huge. Uh, then approaching in a non-threatening manner and using words like, hey, we're here to help you. We're here to listen to you, I think, is um, is what you see be a, a good example of where we need to go with this type of policing. But back to your question, um, what we saw was different, a few different aspects. We saw some police departments that pair a mental health clinician with an officer for mm-hmm. mental health calls and they go out and they do a co-responder approach. Um, some of them just use a liaison with their local mental health authority. And then some of them actually have dedicated, which is important, dedicated mental health units. It's good to train all the officers in crisis intervention training. I say, you know, I have this saying that CIT is for everyone, but not everyone is for CIT. You know, I agree. Sense. So to have a dedicated mental health unit, I think you see uh, a group of individuals that have a level of expertise at a much higher um, level that can that they know the people in the mental health treatment facilities. They know when you have a uh, an issue with an operational issue. Uh, logistics. You can help navigate that system for the officer because you know as well as I do when you have a bad experience. And it's important to have a dedicated mental health unit because they'll work as a liaison, you know, between the police department and the mental health community. And you know as well as I that if you have a bad experience somewhere as a police officer, once you sit down with the the other officers and start having coffee and say, don't ever use that place again, then they won't. And that's where it's important to say, hey, well, why don't you contact my mental health unit, lodge a complaint, find out what happened. And that way you don't have this disconnect between the police department and the provider, because who really is the one that will suffer? And that's the patient in the back seat that needs the help. That's why it's important to have these dedicated units. And I understand that not every department can have that because the average size of a police department in the United States is about 12 officers. So it's very difficult, you know, logistically speaking. Well, and I think in our profession, uh, mental health is one of the mental health and juvenile um, arrests or juvenile proceedings. The two things that officers tend to shy away from one, because they don't understand it or two, um, it's it's very technically long and drawn out the process when you deal with a mentally disturbed person to have them committed or get them services. So. What I liked about the the um, the documentary was um, your expertise, and the reason why I asked you that question about have any has any officers come up to you and changed their style of policing is because after I watched it, I as luck would have it, Ernie, that night that I watched your that day because I worked nights, I watched the documentary in the day. I called my former co-host and I was like, "Listen, you got to check this documentary out." I want to have these guys come on the show. They're legit. Luck would have it that night. I got a lady uh, that was uh, emotionally disturbed. Um, She wouldn't sit down with anybody. She was erratic. Uh, She was talking about uh, killing herself. And I took a line from your documentary that the very same day I listened to it, which is, is um, I'm scared. You're scaring me and you're scaring everybody else here. And I'm worried about you. And she's like, well, I'm not trying to scare you. And I'm like, well, you are. You're really scaring me because I don't know what to do for you. And it's scaring me because I don't want you to do something to yourself. And then if you do that, then that's going to affect me for the rest of my life. And it like snapped like it was it was an amazing thing to watch. 
And I remember taking her for her mental evaluation. And I was sitting in the front seat and I remember saying to myself, I was like, I was like, shit, that really, that really worked. Like I've been doing this for almost 20 years. And usually, you know, we're, we're so robotic as officers. We're like, listen, ma'am, calm down. Everything's going to be okay. What's your problem? What's wrong? It's so robotic because we're, we're, we're so stuck in, in, in the way that we do things repetitively that we're not, we're not evolving as a profession. Uh, so it was refreshing to see that in, um, in the documentary. So I want to tell you my personal experience that it actually worked. Well, you know, you, you speak about your own mental health struggles. So could you not actually relate maybe with how she felt in that moment? See, that's where the human connection takes place. Were you willing to be vulnerable? Were you willing to expose yourself to be transparent to help somebody else? And that's that's where I think you have an advantage mm -hmm. because you're willing to be open and speak about your own struggles. You know, um, another line, and I'm not sure if it was in the documentary, I think it was, is when, when we're dealing with somebody that's suicidal, you know, one of the questions I will normally ask is, you, I want you to ask yourself a question. Do you honestly want to die or you, do you just want the pain to go away? And be honest with yourself. Ask yourself that. Because a lot of times that's exactly what they want. They want the feeling that they're in, that pain, that struggle, that confusion to go away. And maybe you're that person that with your training can get them plugged into the right resource and save their life possibly. Yeah. And it's, and it's interesting that you brought up about my own mental health is, is that I've never, I never thought about that before. Like, um, you know, I wrote a book, Ernie, um, uh, I asked Ernie to do the for forward to my book cause, um, his documentary, him and Joe touch, touch me in a way. Um, and Ernie's always been a good friend of mine. who's always checked on me since I've left the agency. And I write about it in the book about my mental health struggles and, and, uh, being a suicide survivor and I never looked at it that way. I don't think I ever wanted to do it. I just wanted to stop feeling the way I was feeling. I just wanted to stop feeling depressed and I wanted to stop feeling like um, I wasn't being appreciated and that I was being screwed with and that, you know, I had a huge target on my back. I just wanted all of it to stop. I just wanted it to just leave me alone and let me let me be me. And um, I don't think I ever was fully committed to doing it. I just wanted that stuff to stop. I never realized that till just now when we we're talking. That's so, so you saying that brings up an important issue, right? You needed to be seen at that time. Mm -hmm. Somebody needed to see you in your struggle, whether that's a supervisor, a coworker, a friend, a family member. It Joe says that in the film, I see you. That means you don't have to pretend with me. Mm -hmm. You don't have to act like everything's okay because I see you. I see you're hurt. And I'm here to help you. And if help means just to listen, then I'm here to listen. You know, I think, I think, oh, wow, this is such a profound interview, Ernie. I mean, I, I can't even believe we're recording it because it's capturing it, which is, I think it might be some of my frustration and my anger with my former department is, is that I wasn't seen. Um, I wasn't helped. I wasn't, that didn't happen. I, I, that didn't happen at all. And then when we created the podcast, I was seen, but we were seen in a different way. We were seen in a way of like, you guys need to stop talking about this stuff. Like, and, and we're going to get into the, the officer side of stuff, which is, is the mental health piece, which is, I think if 
if somebody from my department, a supervisor, a commander would have come to me and said, hey, listen, something's not right with you. And it was easy to identify. I didn't make it very difficult, Ernie, at my department. I was burning leave like it was going out of style. Um, you know, I was secluded. Um, I was not hanging out with people on the job. Uh, I was not hanging out off the job when there was choir practice at the bar. Um, you know, I wasn't doing any of that stuff. I had every warning sign known to mankind and nobody saw it. Nobody. So when you, when you, you bring up an interesting point, Nick, and I, and I'll tell, I'll share a story with you and I'll never say something, um, that Joe wouldn't tell you himself because mm -hmm. the story involves him is we had a reporter uh, writing with us, Byron Pitts on Nightline, and you can Google it and watch it on YouTube. Um, the reporter asked Joe, and Joe's a veteran, Marine Corps veteran, and he struggled with his own depression. And the reporter asked him, have you, have you ever considered suicide? Mm -hmm. And his response was, well, yes, and more times than once. And that's what allows him to be so good at what he does. Now, when that aired, you know where I'm going with this, right? I got pulled aside very quickly. I know. Quickly, and asked, hey, um, is Joe okay? Do you feel safe riding with him? Yep. Uh, does he need a fit for duty? And I'm like, you're just now asking? <laughs> He's talking about how he felt a few years back. Yeah. He's doing good now. Uh, he's he's in therapy. He sees two different therapists. He, he's he's addressed the issue because nobody else did. He took it upon himself to address the issue. But it's funny how the question was raised. Do you feel safe instead of how is he doing now? Yeah. You know, so I, I struggle with that because it bothered me very bad um, because I know how passionate we both are when it comes to helping people with mental health. And since we've started this unit, uh, I, I was one of the original members of this unit that we started 12 years ago, um, six police officer suicides that I've, that, I, that I've handled myself, um, three of them with Joe. So it's very personal to me, you know, that we, that we change the culture. And, and it is the culture. And I'm going to draw from personal experience too. You know, you listen to the show religiously. You know what happened with my former agency. The weekend that um, that I got my notice that um, uh, that I was being put on uh, administrative leave pending the results of my investigation, I got a phone call right after I submitted my resignation from my chief of police. And his only concern at that time was whether or not I was going to do something to myself. And I was like taken back and I was like, where is that coming from? And he was like, well, you know, this is a tough situation. And I was like, okay. He goes on, you know, I really care about your mental health, blah, blah, blah. Monday, he made my resignation effective immediately. And I would venture to say it was because that mental health piece was there and didn't want to deal with the mental health piece of what comes along with putting somebody on administrative suspension and that stigma. And that's the big, big problem right now in a lot of these agencies. A lot of officers are reluctant to come forward because of the stigma about what's going to happen to them. Uh, are they going to take my gun and badge away? Can I be on medication and still be a cop? That's the big, big, I, I have a whole chapter on that on my book. Um, because well, if, for, I could, yeah. if I could interrupt just for a second, because as you're telling me this story, 
I cannot tell you how many times I've been asked to go check on an officer from our command. Mm -hmm. Was your gun, just a question, a department issued? Yes. Yes. Okay. You asked me where. So that's why it's not, are you going to kill yourself? Mm -hmm. Are you going to kill yourself with our gun? I I bring this up because this podcast is raw and it's honest and we can speak the truth. Mm-hmm. And I, I've had that issue come up. Well, go get the department issued weapon and put it up. And I'm like, well, what about if he has any other guns in the house? We're just worried about that one. Yep. Now, understand my my views and my opinions do not um, maybe right. line up with my department. And I've worked for many departments. So I'm not going to say uh, that this is just personal experience. Okay. Mm-hmm. This is what I see from leadership. And that should scare the hell out of you as an officer. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I, I left out that part, which you, you triggered my memory, which was, as he had asked, cause I was up in Boston when this happened and they wanted me to return back to Virginia so that they can take my gun and my badge from me. And I was like, I'm not coming back till Monday. This was like on Friday, I think. Yeah. Friday. And he's like, well, we, the sergeant from internal investigation was like, well, you need to come back today. And I was like, sorry, bud, that's not happening. I'm not leaving and driving all the way back for for you to get my gun and back. I said, I know what you're concerned about. You want my gun. It's in my locker. Here's the locker combination. Go get it. And that's Saturday that that was what the chief had asked me. Did I take my department issued wish, weapon with me back up to Boston? And I was like, no, no, I did not. And that's all the concern was because he didn't want in the news, um, blah, 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 police department, uh, you know, Nick from blah, 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 police department shot and killed himself with his duty weapon. He, he didn't want that in the press. And I think as a, as a profession, I think uh, command staff needs to realize that there are better ways to handle mel- mental health crises. Because like I told you before, I gave all the signs, man. I mean, I couldn't have laid it out any easier. And um, I was a sergeant for seven years. And if I had a me, I'd have seen it right away. I would have seen that there was a major, major problem. And, um, you know, I, I relate with Joe, which is, is um, if I had been asked that question, I would have said, yeah, yeah, multiple times I've thought about it. The only difference is on May 25th, 2019, I perfected it. I knew exactly what I was going to do. Um, and uh, as a perfectionist, I wanted it to be done the right way. I wanted my family to be taken care of. So, um, so I, I, I went on a tangent there with that, but let's talk about, let's talk about COVID. Let's talk about this, um, what's going on in the media with the latest, um, law enforcement shootings and law enforcement, law enforcement, mental health, that piece. Um, how detrimental is this right now for our current officers and, um, potential officers with recruitment? Yeah. Well, you're looking at a perfect storm. Yeah. Uh, you know, for officers that are already in law enforcement and I've been a, I've been a police officer for 28 years. Okay. I've never seen it this bad Yeah. Uh, with, with a pandemic. I've never experienced anything like this in my life. Yeah. These protests. Yes. But to this level, never, never have I seen anything like this. Um, I can't imagine what it's like for the line officer that's assigned to 
uh, crowd control, a riot team, whatever they're called, mobile field force. I can't imagine what it's like for them day in and day out to have to put all that gear on and stay in the line to protect property or people while they're getting yelled at, cursed at, spit at. And I, I understand there's another side to this. And I, I speak because I was in the crowd marching. Um, I was asked to, to do that as one of my assignments. And what I realized and what I saw from being involved in the marches, there is a legit concern. There is pain. There is hurt. There. Okay. Where did we leave off at? I couldn't imagine what it's like for the line officer that's standing to protect property or, or people, you know, getting yelled at, cursed at, uh, pushed, and you have to maintain your professionalism. Now, I understand there is another side to this. And I can say that because I was assigned to work in the protest as a protester, uh, to be eyes and ears on the ground. And what happened, Nick, is I got caught up in this emotion. There are people in this community that are hurting. Mm -hmm. There are people that want to see police reform. There are people that have been affected by trauma and have a legit complaint with the way policing is done nationally. And while I'm listening to this, brother, I forgot I was an officer for a moment. I mean, I really got caught up in this. And so I get that there's another side to this. And if we would listen to everyone that wants to say anything about this topic, I think we could start making some kind of sense of this and making progress in the right decision. Now, for officers that are going to be just joining in recruitment, that's a difficult, that's a difficult sell for police departments. Who in the world would want to join the police department right now with COVID going around? You're being asked to respond to calls and you have no say so in it. You have to go Yeah. Um, with the protests going on and, and just the, the atmosphere, the environment of what's going on within policing. I don't know why anybody would join, but when, if they do, there's going to have to be a change in, in training. And that's that's been pointed out um, very clearly. Yeah, I think, you know, um you know, this is this is a very controversial topic, which is I think the millennial generation is going to be the generation that's going to fix law enforcement uh, for several different reasons. And they get a bad rap, you know, with constantly being on the phones and on the computer and stuff like that. But they have grown up in an environment of anti-bullying and, um, you know, um, uh, anti-racism and, and um, um, social media. Yeah, and, and, and inclusion and um, all these different things. I speak about it in my, my book. It's one of the last chapters in the book, which is, is that the millennial generation is going to fix the mental health crisis within our profession because they've grown up around suicides. They've grown up around about asking for help when they're depressed. They've grown up around antidepressants. They've grown up around superstars dying from suicide time and time and time again. Um, 
I get so many emails and so many messages from officers that are out there right now dealing with these riots and dealing with these protests and stuff like that. It breaks my heart because a lot of them are exiting at fast, uh, such a, I mean, 10, 15 year veterans are just leaving. They're just leaving the profession because they're fed up and tired of it. And I worry, I worry about the pendulum swinging for law enforcement suicides. Uh, we were doing so well the beginning of the year with 30% reduction compared to last year. Last year was the worst year in, in law enforcement suicides, according to bluehelp.org. I mean, is that a, is that a concern of yours um, that once this all dies down, the, the feeling of self-worth from some of these officers will um, swing that pendulum and law enforcement suicides will increase? Well, it's not just the self-worth, but it's their um, being around the trauma that they're seeing. Because, you know, and I think I think it was Joe that said it, you know, a 20-year veteran will, will see maybe 188 traumatic events in a 20-year career where a normal civilian may see one or two. Yeah. Now, multiply that by what's going on. Yeah. It's only going to get worse. It's something has to be done and it has to be done now. Now, what does that look like? I don't know. Um, I know that regular check-in, welfare, whether it's, I know EAPs get a bad rap. There's some places that have peer support programs. Some of those get a bad rap, but you, you need to have something in place Yeah. Uh, where and, and normalize it, normalize it. Like if I say, if you ask me, hey, Ernie, you want to go bowling tonight? And I respond, man, I, I wish I could, but I got to go with my therapist tonight. That should not shock an officer to hear another officer say that. It should be like, oh, okay, well, maybe next week. Yeah. But if I were to say that today, oh, an officer God. would be like, hold on. What do you mean? Like a marriage therapist? What's going on? Yeah. <laughs> it's okay not to be okay. It's just not okay to stay that way. Yeah. We, need to, we need to get rid of the stigma crap that is preventing good people that are putting their lives on the line for total strangers when they got family at home, but they're refusing to get help because they don't want to be made fun of. Yeah. And I miss, I miss being in my agency um, specifically for that one reason was when we were doing this podcast, I spent probably 50% of my time talking to officers that listen to the show um, and um, being their resource because I had been vulnerable that I, I said, Hey, I'm, I'm, going to therapy and I'm taking medication and I had countless turning that'd be 50, 60 officers from my old agency going, you know, I, I was good to hear that come from you because now I'm not afraid to go and go get medication. And, you know, what did it do to you? You know, what did the medication do to you? Did it work? And I didn't sugarcoat it. I, like you said, this podcast is very raw, raw. It took me three medications to find one that worked. The first two sucked. It was terrible. I'd rather be depressed than be on them, but I stuck with it because I didn't want to feel that way anymore. And those that are listening to this that aren't from my former agency and you're you're worried about uh, going to see a therapist, like Ernie said, don't be, don't be. Um, I found it very, very therapeutic, no pun intended, that to go and talk to somebody uh, that didn't know me. She didn't know me from Adam. And I went in there and I just spilled my guts. And I was so anti-medication, man. So anti. I, I was like, I am not fucking, I'm not taking that shit. I'm not taking it. And um, I could see why mentally, um, mental health, uh, folks that struggle with mental health don't take medication anymore. 
because it sucks the first couple times you take it. Like if you don't find the right one right away, let me give that caveat. If you don't find the right one, you got to be honest. You got to get on the phone with your, your psychiatrist and be like, listen, this ain't working. It ain't working. You got to switch it. And I was very honest with my therapist. But now I can't imagine not being on it. I mean, eventually I'll not be on it. I'd like my 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 goal is to not be on it. But I know when I'm not on it. I know when I skip a day. And that's only happened twice because it's not fun. <laughs> you know? No, and, and what's the alternative, right? Is it go home and continue drinking? Is it go home and stream porn all night because that's a negative coping skill? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm telling you what officers do. Like, I know this. Are they ordering medications from Canada or whatever and, and, and self-medicating on pills? There, There is a real issue out there. And it, it's, it, should, it should be to the forefront. You know, if we're going to do police reform, I mean, we got to start with ourselves. What good are we to go out and help a community when we're not well ourselves? We've got to be tip top, you know, like, you know, you hear, you know, you hear it on social media. Well, there can't be a few bad apples, you know, and and I've heard all the the crap of, you know, uh, you know, pilots, they don't have the the option of whether they want to land or not one day, you know, and and you hear all that crap. Well, you know, we're human beings. We, We subject ourselves to a lot of traumatic events. We work a lot of long hours. We're under a great deal of stress and fatigue. And that wears on an individual and it wears on you when you're working double shifts because there are not enough officers to cover districts. And that is the reality of what is happening today. And I'll tell you, I think with the police reform that they're talking about, that's in there because I just read an article yesterday that there is a uh, police chief that's already um, already mandated once a year, annual PTSD screening, confidential, confidential PTSD screening, with the promissory note of no uh, fit for duty, which is interesting, which is very, very interesting. How he's doing that, I'd like to dive into a little bit more because um, the confidentiality part, once you take that PTSD screening and you pop red or or cautionary, um, how is he dealing with that? How is, how is the chief going to not fit for duty to you? So it was just a blurb I read I read the article, but it didn't dive in. But I think, like you said, I think it. I think that's going to be involved in the police reform, which is, is how long of a shift are these officers working? Because the majority of them working 11 hours plus, which is terrible, ter- especially when you work at midnights. I worked midnights for almost my whole entire career. I never knew what time of the day it was. I never knew what day it was. Like, like people would be uh. like, I would be like, today, Wednesday or Friday? And they look at you like you're insane. And they're like, what's wrong with you? And you're like, you have no idea. My breakfast, my breakfast is at, I'm sorry, my dinner is at three o'clock in the morning. My breakfast is three in the afternoon. My lunch is at seven in the afternoon. Right. So, so importantly, what you're talking about with this reform, that's good for the officers that are on right now that, that are employed and they're trying to do that screening process. But who are we recruiting also? You know, a lot of times departments are getting a stipend from the government when they hire somebody that's a veteran, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Well, I can tell you right now, you need to do a good screening because I love our veterans. I mean, Joe, my partner, is a veteran. Mm-hmm. But his PTSD diagnosis came from being in the military. 
Right. You know, and then what are we teaching these cadets while they're in the academy? Now, it seems like an academy is long and drawn out at eight months. That's really not a whole lot of time, you know, compared to what you have to compress. And also departments are decentralized, meaning that some academies are eight months long, some are 12 weeks long. So there's nothing standardized in what they're getting other than the foundation of law. But what are they learning about themselves, right? If we're talking about introducing new concepts of teaching, like adverse childhood um, experiences, what happened to them as a child? What kind of trauma did they experience? And how does that affect them as an adult? Also, the basic understanding of neuroscience, of cognitive neuroscience and psychobiology, just why does the brain react the way it does to certain events you may learn something about yourself that will better prepare you for a traumatic event or an increased stimuli that you're involved in on the street and know how to better deal with that without going straight into a fight or flight. You know, there's so much that can be done. But, and, and I, man, I agree with you so much. It has to start at the Academy level because I was talking to, um, I was talking to Lieutenant Colonel Grossman with his interview. And I said to him, you know, a lot of officers now have out of carry vests and we have a tourniquet on that vest, right? You general genuinely wind up getting um, anywhere from a 20 to a 40 hour class for you to carry that tourniquet. So you got to go through the nomenclature of it, how to pull it out, how to use it, all that stuff. How many hours would you venture to say that we get in the profession about taking care of our mental health or taking care of each other's mental health, nowhere near the amount that you get with taser training, turning. And I'm not taking anything away from defensive tactics instructors. Those are very important tools that we need on our tool belt for us to save lives. But where is the flip side to that? Where is the mental health piece where we're teaching that in the academy? And we're not just doing it as a checkoff box. We're not saying that we have a peer support team just because it's it's the hot button right now. Um, are we sinking enough um, resources into mental health for our law enforcement officers? Because if they're not mentally checked, you know, sound, how are they going to deal with the public out on the on the road? Right. Um, so you know, when you're describing the tourniquet. You're describing motor skills, right? Are you able, just like drawing a firearm, are you able to reach down, unlatch the safety, bring the gun up, extend it, put it on target, and fire? If you do that for whatever, five weeks or something, you reach the point of arrested development, right? You can no longer hone that skill any better than what you've learned at that moment, right? Same thing with a tourniquet. But now if we're switching and we're going to what you're talking about, cognition, learning new memories, how to um, plasticity, right? Can the brain change and mold and learn new ways of doing things? Absolutely. When I came through the academy 28 years ago, they didn't teach us how to deal with mental health in the community. They certainly didn't teach it about us. We, I was not prepared for what was on the other side. Okay, I'm going to be honest. 21 years old, I had no clue what was on this other side of, of community, right? I grew up in this little small bubble. Um, what's interesting about that age at 21 is the male brain doesn't even finish developing until 27. But here's a badge and gun. You're certified. 
go out there, although you're still growing, right? Uh, it's interesting. So what would a police department look like if they didn't hire until you turn 30 years old? Mm-hmm. I'm just throwing it out there. What would it look like? Would you get a more mature applicant that has life experience, that's experienced some trauma, that knows how to process and deal with it? It's, these questions need to be asked. Like this, when we're talking reform, these are the things I'm talking about. Yeah, I never thought of that before um, because right now the age restriction is 21. That's every department is just striving to hit that 21 because you need to be 21 in a lot of states to carry a gun. But the other thing that you something that sparked my um, I had to write it down on my pad before I forgot. Um, a lot of things that we another thing that we can really do with the police reform thing is train our supervisors and our commanders with mental health, uh, with the mental health piece, because I remember being a sergeant. I still remember. I, I mean, this was nine years ago I got promoted. So I went up to the chief's office. He handed me my gold badge, my chevrons. And he was like, welcome to management. Um, you know, do a good job. That was it. And like probably within my first couple of months of being a sergeant, I had an officer that was in crisis. Nobody, nobody teaches you how to do that. The only thing that they taught me how to do was fill out the workers' comp paperwork. Um, that was it. I didn't have any compassion training. I didn't have any of that stuff. And then you climb the ranks as you further, as you climb up, you know, lieutenant and captain and so on and so forth. I think it's important. And, and I draw from my own personal experience. I think if my sergeant and my lieutenant had better training, um, they would have been able to spot and save, uh, save me. Um, they would have been able to prevent what, no, I, I don't want to, that's not fair to them. They wouldn't have been able to prevent it, but they certainly would have been able to give me more resources than what I thought was my only alternative. Um, so somewhere in that police reform has to be better training for our leadership. Um, I mean, you know, I think if you can't afford the manpower or that time to attend a a 40 hour crisis intervention training, a mental health first aid course, you know, at minimum eight hours. And that's not sufficient. That that's, that's very minimal, but they might just learn that one thing that they need to know to say, Hey, that's a red flag. And I'll tell you another thing that we did um, with with peer support. You know, I was one of the first ones in peer support. And you shouldn't, because we have a variety of officers in there, all different ranks, you know, they remove the rank. And I was really good about going into my lieutenant's office and saying, hey, um, you know, there's talk going around that you had an incident occur off duty. Are you okay? Like, I don't want to know about it. I just want to know, are you okay? Do you, is there anything you want to talk about? A lot of people would be intimidated. You know, because, oh, I can't talk to my lieutenant unless I go to my sergeant to ask permission to see if my lieutenant's okay. I mean, that's crap. That's horse crap. So we should be able to, you know, approach an individual, regardless of rank, and check on them and just say, hey, I'm here as a human being, you know, to check on you, to see how you're doing. And there's training out there that's available to that. There's free training out there available if departments will just make that a priority, you know, on on their list of of, uh, training. From within academies. Well, um, to close out, I, I, I foresee that there's going to be federal grants coming very, very soon from the DOJ, more geared towards police reform, mental health and stuff like that. So those smaller departments that that put in for those those um, federal grants will be able to get them, hopefully, hopefully. Um, 
Ernie, I want to say thank you so much for coming out. I, I almost feel like uh, we were only talking for like like five minutes, but it was, <laughs> it was way more than that, man. We never even got to get into Carol Baskin and, and Joe Exotic oh, or uh, any of the other <laughs> any of the other <laughs> crazy stuff going on, man. Uh, I don't so, know how much more I could take, brother. I'm, I'll be honest. This year it has has done it in. <laughs> I, t- I you know what? I'm not surprised about anything anymore. If if a talking bear walked in front of me. I would just be like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I'll buy it. I'll buy yeah, it. I promise I saw Bigfoot riding a unicorn before I came in to do this interview, and it didn't phase me one bit, man. Nothing phases me anymore, man. Nothing. This is 2020 is like, I just want a refund. I want to get a <laughs> uh, So, listen, I want to thank uh, Ernie again for coming out. If you have not checked out Ernie and Joe Crisis Cops, it is available on HBO Go. Uh, you can go on there. Uh, there's a seven-day trial. Um, so if you go on there, you sign up for HBO Go, watch the documentary. If you don't want to keep HBO, then you can cancel it. If you don't, then there's Game of Thrones and other stuff that's on HBO. But I'm telling you right now, if you're in the law enforcement profession uh, and you have a stake in the game and you're working the streets, you need to check this thing out. Ernie, where? how can these folks get a hold of you? Um, I'm on Twitter. At, at E. Stevens 845, uh, you know, just look for me, search it, click on at Ernie and Joe, the film.com. And, um, you know, you'll be able to connect with me. I'm real good about reaching out to everybody and making sure that I get back with you. Um, you know, I still drive a key and answer my own phone. So I'm not that big of a person right now. <laughs> um, so folks, thank you so much for tuning into this episode. Uh, as always, check us out on rollcallroom.com. You can reach me at nick at rollcallroom.com or you can email mike at mike at rollcallroom.com. As always, be good to each other, take care of each other, and see you on the next one. Do you want to help the Roll Call Room podcast keep going? Of course you do. Join Patreon and pledge to the show each month. Tiers start at $5 and you can get some pretty cool shit with it, including swag and access to listen to episode clips early. So put that Starbucks coffee down and help my dad keep the show going. Don't be a fucking Steve. Go to rollcallroom.com to pledge today.